0: Our sermon title today is, But God Being Rich in Mercy, and our passage is Ephesians 2, verses 4-7. through So if you'll turn with me to Paul's great letter here to the church at Ephesus, and of course it's to Christians everywhere, because every word of Scripture is given by inspiration. It's profitable for our growth in grace. And so this is a word to us as God's people. We've been looking at this book for a couple of weeks now, and Last time we were together, we were in Ephesians two, verses one through three, and that described our natural predicament, or our, our predicament that we have in in our natural state, that apart from Jesus we're dead in sin, we're spiritually dead, we're under the just condemnation of God. Uh, apart from Jesus, we deserve the penalty for our sins, that we are by nature children of wrath, and that we are people who, by our instincts, are indulging the desires of the flesh and walking in the ways of the world. So this is the predicament that Paul paints for us in verses 1 through 3 there. It's not not simply for some people in Ephesus or for Jewish Christians in Ephesus or for Gentiles in Ephesus. Paul makes this clear that this is the predicament that every man, woman, boy and girl in the world finds themselves in their natural state. Every human being in this world apart from Jesus is under the just condemnation of God. That's our predicament. And Paul's described it in bold and clear terms in these first three verses. So the question then arises, in that circumstance, where does our hope come from? Where do we find a glimmer of hope in this dark picture? We look around us, we see this fallen world, we see the effects of sin and uh, the misery that is experienced by millions of our fellow humans. And where does the hope come from? Well, that's what this passage is going to teach us today. Uh, If you allow your eyes to glance down in verses 4 through 7, Paul begins the answer to our predicament that he he described so clearly for us last week. And so I want you to notice the juxtaposition there. The first words of this chapter in chapter 2, many of your English translations are, And you. Those are the words that begin the first three verses. Paul is out to describe our predicament as human beings apart from Christ under the just condemnation of God. But notice the first three words of verse 4. But God. In other words, this passage is about the movement from our death under the just condemnation of God to life in Jesus because of His finished work. And so the Apostle is moving us through the divine actions which rescued us out of our predicament. Brought us into the freedom of life of sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus. So... Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we go to to read His Word. Our Lord and our God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is truth, and we thank You that Your truth is practical, that You mean it for men, women, boys, and girls. You mean it to build us up in grace and guide us in life and to change the way we look at the world and to reorient the direction of our lives. You mean it to equip us for every good work. And so by Your Word, will You encourage us today, first by realizing who You are, and then, O oh God, show us how we ought to respond to the truth of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. So Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. And may God write the eternal truths of His Word upon all of our hearts. So if you begin to to embrace the truth that all men and women apart from Jesus are dead in trespasses and sins and that they deserve to be condemned for those sins or are walking according to the course of this world, not walking in the way of obedience with God, not walking in the path of peace, not following God but walking in conformity to the world and are indulging the flesh and the desires of the mind. They're setting their affections on the wrong things and are by nature children of wrath. Well, if, if you believe that, which is what the scripture says, and where does the hope come from? Where is a message of hope for people in that kind of predicament? And the apostle begins to tell us here where that hope comes from with two little words. He says, but God And even as he has described our situation in verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7, beginning with those words, but God, he points us in the direction of our help. You remember Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 where the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, Paul is giving us the same answer here in even a more full way. Your help is not... Going to come from you, it's going to come from God. And so I want us to see four things in particular that Paul teaches us here in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. First of all, I want you to see the direction from where he says our help will come. Then I want us to see what that he tells us, what God did in order to help us in our circumstance. And thirdly, I want us to see what he says God's motivation was in doing this. And then fourthly, I want us to see what he says God's purpose was in doing this. So point one on our outline then. Paul's pointing us to the direction of our help. The direction of our help. We've already seen the bold contrast between verse one, what we read, and you. uh, Because our situation was, you know, we're dead in trespasses and sin. By nature, children of wrath, walking according to To the course of this world, under the dominion of Satan, we're dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the picture apart from Jesus. And from where does Paul say our help comes? Well, verse 4, the contrast. He says, and you, this was your former condition. Verse 4, but God, even when we were dead in our transgressions. In other words, Paul says your help comes through this decisive intervention in your situation by God Himself. When you could do nothing else, God came to your rescue. And the Apostle's message is so important because it's not a message to us that, well, your help comes from something in you. Your help comes from something that you can contribute to, the, to your situation. No, your help comes from the Lord. You know, we're all familiar with the quotation uh, that Benjamin Franklin made. Um, it, it's, it didn't originate with him, but he, 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 wrote, uh, he, he wrote this in, in one of the almanacs he was writing. God helps those who help themselves. Now some professing Christians think that that's actually found in the Bible. And even if we know it's not in the Bible, and in fact the Bible teaches just the opposite, functionally we often live as though that were true. Now aside from the merits of what Franklin was trying to say by that pithy saying he used, understanding that is bad, bad theology, especially when it comes to salvation. Because if we are dead, and if in salvation God helps those who help themselves, where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you still dead, because the dead cannot help themselves. And so the apostle is saying, your hope of help does not come from within you, it comes from God. God is the source of your help, He is the source of your hope. Paul is not preaching God helps those who, helps them, who help themselves, he's preaching the sovereign grace and mercy of God and salvation. That God in His mercy took the initiative, then He came and He rescued us when we could not help ourselves. And that's the great source of hope. And notice, if, if you don't understand that, that that is Christianity's answer to the source of human hope, then you really don't understand Christianity. And consequently, when Christian preachers and teachers today confuse the source of our hope with something in ourselves, where they're fundamentally betraying the mercy and the grace and the sovereign initiative of God in salvation that is so beautifully set forth in Scripture. And actually, they're robbing you of a great message of hope and comfort, a hope and a comfort that's soul-stirring, it is praise-inducing, and it's life-changing. And it moves us to real effective action because we realize that our hope is not found in ourselves, it's found in God alone. Paul, uh, Psalm 34, verse 8 says, "O taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, we know the Lord is, is good. But Paul is telling us here God's goodness is overwhelming in the way that He has dealt with us as sinners. He has unexpectedly come and blessed us in a shockingly glorious way in salvation. So the first thing that Paul says is your hope doesn't come from within you. Your hope doesn't come from something that you have done. And certainly your hope doesn't come from something that you deserve. Your hope comes from the exceedingly good and gracious God who has reached out to you in mercy to save you from your sins. Now, the second thing that Paul directs our attention to here is what God has done. You see that encapsulated in a little parenthetical statement. Many of your Bibles may actually have it in parentheses at the very end of verse 5, but it says, by grace you have been saved. So Paul tells us what God does since we as humans are under in this predicament of, uh, of being under the just condemnation of God in our natural state. He tells us God saves us and he explains what he means by God saving us in three particular ways. First of all, God makes us alive. Notice how he puts it in, in verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. And then look at verse 6. Secondly, He raised us up with Him. <clears throat> now we think about We'll think about what that means in a couple of moments. But for now, just concentrate on these phrases. He he made us alive. Secondly, He raised us up with Him. And then thirdly, He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is saying God saved us. He, He gave us the gift of life. He freed us from death. He made us alive together with Christ. But not only that, He raised us up with Christ. And that's not referring to the resurrection of Christ, but to the ascension of Christ. And He seated us in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Paul's explaining to us here that this magnificent redemption that has been given to us by God in Jesus Christ, and notice how it parallels something that we say in the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed is a wonderfully short biblical summary of many of the important things that we believe as Christians. And in the Creed, we say three things in particular about Jesus Christ. After we confess that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and He descended into hell, we say three more things about Him. We say, on the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is, His resurrection, His ascension, and His his session, his, His rule, His being seated at the right hand of the Father and ruling over all things, heaven and earth, So we confess in the Apostles' Creed that we believe that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus ascended into heaven, and that we believe Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty, ruling the world by His Word and Spirit for the sake of His people. That's a glorious thing to say. But I want you to notice what Paul says here. Paul doesn't simply say that Jesus was raised and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He says that, You have been raised from the dead and raised up into glory and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. How can that be? Well, having by faith trusted in Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit has united you, you to Jesus Christ so that everything that is Christ is yours. That is salvation. That's what he's saying. That God in His mercy has saved you by giving everything that belongs to Christ to you. He has given you the benefits of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's given you the benefit of Jesus' ascension. And He's given you the benefits of Jesus' heavenly session, ruling at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He saved you from sin and from the condemnation of sin, and He has given you all the benefits that flow from what Jesus has done on your behalf. Now, why does the apostle tell you that? Because those realities change everything about your life. You know, most of us have experienced, if you live long enough, you've experienced life-changing events. I mean, wonderful events. We'll start with that. Things like if, you, if you're married, then certainly one of those life-changing events was your wedding day. If you have children, birth of a child is a life-changing event. Uh, I remember the first time that I held my son a few minutes after he was born. I remember that day like it was yesterday. Now, we had waited for 20 years to have him, so that added to the experience. But secondly, I was overwhelmed by the thought that just seemed to pop into my head out of nowhere. As I was holding him, I thought, as a Christian, you know, I'm united to Jesus by faith. And the scripture says, I'm perfectly loved by my heavenly Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yet here I am, I'm a sinful man and yet, if God loves me more than I love this little boy that I'm holding, I can't even imagine a kind of love like that. Other things happen to change our lives, though, some not so good. Sometimes when we go through a traumatic accident or a disaster or we lose somebody close to us in an unexpected way. Well, that's a very negative and yet life-changing experience as well. But every life-changing experience, at least in part, Add something to the definition of who you are. <clears throat> the apostle knows that there are many negative stories here in Ephesus among the Christians there. Maybe some of them um, could have said just a pre- few, me- few previous months that, well, you know, my dad was taken away by, by, uh, from my family. He's, he's been sent into exile to work in the salt mines because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. Because the Roman government saw faith in Christ as a threat to the emperor's rule. And I've never seen my dad since. I've wondered if I would ever even see him again. Paul knows there are at least 50 stories like that in the church there in Ephesus about difficult events that have changed their lives and have shaped who they are. And here's the apostle saying, Friends, no matter what you've gone through, no matter how demoralizing it may have been, no matter how bitter or painful it may have been, I want to tell you about three events that are bigger than those event, events that, that define who you are. More important than the geographical area in which you were born, or the schools you went to, or the friendships that you developed, or the vocations you went into, or the things that you're now involved in. These three things define who you are as a Christian, You're raised from the dead in Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul was teaching us that in Romans 6, that you died with Christ. When Holy Spirit regenerated you and gave you the gift of faith, you put your trust in Jesus, you died with Christ. And you were raised again from the dead with Him. And you ascended with Jesus. And you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places even now. Apostles saying, those things which Jesus did for you, Define you now because you trust in Him alone for salvation. His story becomes the story of your life. Now the implications of that truth are staggering and pervasive. That's why I said in a recent sermon, so when we yield to temptation and we fall into sin, we need to remember that God's love for us in Christ is greater than all of our sin. That our sin doesn't define us if we're trusting in Jesus. No sinful choice you ever make will define those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, behavior is important, and and there are consequences. But our failure cannot define us if we're in Christ. Besides, we tend to fixate on our behavior and we ignore our hearts. So as God continues to transform your heart over time, then you'll see the fruit of that. We're called to confess our sins, repent, and believe the gospel. That is the manner in which God transforms us and causes us to grow in obedience and in faith. Because Christ's blessings become our blessings. His salvation is for you. 2 Corinthians five twenty one, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that what? So that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. And therefore the Apostle is saying, Ephesian Christians, no matter what's going on in your life right now, that you may think defines your life irretrievably, Well, I have three bigger things that define who you are as a Christian. You've been raised from the dead with Christ. You're no longer in the bondage to sin. You've been raised up to the freedom of sons. You've ascended into the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. The ultimate victory is absolutely assured, even though there are bumps and scrapes and falls and a lot of sin along the way. Dear friends, that is a glorious reality. And that's why it is so glorious, isn't it, that while... Stephen, remember in Acts 7 when he's losing his life here on earth? He's being stoned to death because of his profession as a Christian. What does he look up and see? He looks up and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. But what is Jesus doing? Well, he's standing up. Now, normally in the New Testament, Jesus is seated. Why is that? Because that indicates he is sitting as a judge and ruler over the world. But Jesus is standing in Stephen's vision. Why? Because he's standing in honor of his servant, Stephen, who's coming into his presence. And you and I live in light of that victory, which is absolutely assured. You'll be welcomed in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And by virtue of the fact that you're seated with Christ. What does Paul constantly tell the disciples of Jesus? That you will judge the world with Christ. And the apostle says, these things are defining for you as a believer. Brothers and sisters, you've been redeemed. You've been saved from sin. God has done these things for you in Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us why it is that God did this. What motivated God to do this? Did God look down on us and say, you know, they're just so wonderful that I can't help myself? Or did God look down and say, you know, some people down there are just better than other people? Or did he look down and say, there are some people that are trying really hard, and so I'm just going to bless them? Although we tend to think that way sometimes, that is certainly not the case at all. Isn't it interesting that when Paul tells us why God did this in verses four and five, he doesn't mention anything about us, not a word. There's nothing about us here. Look at what he says, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Then if you look at verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. In verse 7, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what's Paul saying? Why did God do this? He did it because of His mercy and His love and His grace, because of God's kindness. That is what motivated him nothing in us it's not him looking down and saying they're so lovable i just have to do this Uh, they're so worthy i have to do this you know they've tried so hard i just have to do this no it's solely because of god's mercy love grace and kindness because of god's compassion his his compassion toward us his pity on us because of god's love for his own his own self-generated concern for our well-being because of God's grace, because His undeserved favor to us, because of His kindness, His spirit of generosity and overflowing that wells up from His heart. Because of these things, God did it. In other words, these benefits which have accrued to us from our salvation are not due to anything in us but to God. It's it's Him reaching out to us in mercy, kindness, love, grace. That's His motivation. And that's so important, because if if we think that there is something in us that induced God's love and kindness and forgiveness of us, well, then we will think that there's something in us that could undermine that love, kindness, forgiveness to us. The only thing that grounds our assurance is the recognition that God has loved us because he loved us. And so there's nothing in us to invoke that love in the first place. So also, as we trust in Him, there's, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's not something we can lose. It's permanent. It's secure. Because He's reached out to us first in that love. And That's what the Apostle John tells us, right? We love Him because He first loved us. But that's not all. He goes on to tell us what God's purpose was in doing this. He tells us that is his goal, his purpose, his end in doing this. He has a, a view toward the everlasting display of his grace. Listen to verse 7. So that in ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, when Satan stands up the last day and, he, he, and asks again the question that he asks Job, you know, is God worth living for? God will be able to say... Look at this multitude that no man can number. None of them are here because they deserve it. If, they were up, if it were up to them, they would be enduring my just condemnation for all eternity. But in them I have displayed my love, my grace, my mercy, my kindness. They are, ev- they are, they are, they are the evidence that I'm worth living for, that I'm worth everything. They are a display of my grace, their evidence, the public witness, the testimony that I am a God of grace and mercy. And so God will be exalted by this display of his mercy and grace. And that is what we are. We are living, breathing, walking, talking tokens of his grace and mercy. None of us deserve God's mercy. We're living a living testimony that God is merciful, even to sinners like us. You know, I like that story that John Stott tells in his commentary on Ephesians. It's a story about one of his professors who was honored on his retirement by the board and faculty of the college. They, they honored him with a beautiful portrait that had been done in his likeness. Be hung in the wall in the hall there where he had spent most of his life. And well, when it was Dr. Gibson was the guy he was talking about. And when he was giving his words of thanks and appreciation at the unveiling of this beautiful portrait, he said, in the future, when people see this painting, they will ask the question, not who is, who is that man, but who painted that portrait. It was an expression of his appreciation for the artist's skills of the one who, who painted that, that portrait. He'd done such a wonderful job that his work would draw attention to itself. And it's also a beautiful picture of what God is doing in us. God's grace has been manifested to us not so that we're the center of the attention. That people are are asking, well, what about that man or that woman? What's her name? No, they're going to say, but who did that work of grace in him or in her? Who who saved that woman? Who saved that man? What We are the display of his workmanship in salvation. And so the apostle has pointed us to our hope. It's in God. He's told us what God has done. He has saved us. He's raised us from the dead. He's caused us to be ascended with Christ and seated in the heavenly places with Him. And He's done all of this because of His love alone, nothing in us. And He's done this also for His own glory so that His grace might be displayed in us for all time. So the Apostle has given us something that anchors our hope even in this fallen and this tragic world. So so may God grant that we would believe what he is teaching us here. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this word of truth and hope. Will you bring it home to our hearts? Use it to transform us. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.